If you're between the ages of four to the first grade, you're excused to kids' club. Hope you're as excited to be here as they were to leave. <laughs> Please open up your Bibles to Genesis 2. That'll be our text this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Red Pew Bible in front of you. You are most welcome to use it. You're welcome to keep it. And if you should find you've got like six of them in your car, if you could bring a couple of them back, we would appreciate it. It is our desire that you would always see that what we're talking about this morning comes directly from the Word of God. So I want you to have that. This is our fourth week in our Genesis series and our second actually in the book of Genesis. We spent our first two weeks introducing Genesis from a New Testament perspective, looking at Jesus' view of the Old Testament, and then asking the question, why Genesis? Why are we going into this book? Last week we opened up Genesis chapter 1 and walked through it. It was my desire that we would see the text and see the focus of the text. And I just want to say from the onset that there are so many different ways that you can look at the book of Genesis. We're trying to follow the, the, a single line all the way through it because I want you to at least see and appreciate that if you look at the, a book of a Bible, you can look at the whole Bible, you could actually look at the forest, you could look at the trees, you could look at the cell or the leaves, or you could even look at the cells, and we're kind of taking a tree approach here. We could get way more minute with it, we could dig in and make this like a seven-year series that we'd all, get, we'd all struggle with. Or we could take it all in one fell swoop and we're kind of walking through it. In fact, you'll see that in this text that there are lots of places we could stop and preach a sermon on, if not a whole series, but we're going to wander all the way through chapter 2 this morning because we want you to see the, what the text is saying, what it, the flow of the text as it moves through. So last week we started in Genesis 1, and we wanted you to see the power and the might and the sovereignty of our God as he literally spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. And that's absolutely breathtaking if you will lean into that. And we wanted you to see that when he created, he created with purpose. Look back and consider. On the first two days, God formed the sky. And then he created light and he lifted the sky. And then from beginning on the third day, he begins to fill the earth and he creates plants and seeds and fruit trees. And listen to me, and he declares it is good. On the fourth day, he creates the sun, moon, all the galaxies, all the stars. And again, he says, it is good. On the fifth day, he fills the rivers, the lakes, the ocean with all the fish and otters and all the things that swim and he fills the skies with eagles and hawks and owls and all the other birds and again he declares it is good and on the sixth day he started to fill the land by creating domesticated and wild animals cows and lions and elephants and such and again says it is good and then finally he creates humans and he declares it is very good. All of his creation from the planet itself to the universe around us to the Milky Way to the rivers to the streams to the birds to the fish to all the animals to all the creepy crawly things they're good. 
But what made creation very good was the creation of people. And friends, when you think about the beauty of his creation, when you consider its majesty, when you consider its complexity, when you just consider the sheer volume of all of it, do you know why it was very good when he finally made people? Because when he finally made all of it, when he declared it all good, when he finally made all of it and put man in it, it was very good because finally there was somebody who would enjoy it. There was somebody who would see it. There was somebody who would experience it. And his aim in that was not that we'd take delight just in the it. He didn't create it as an ends. He created it as a means to an ends. That is to say that when you pick up an apple or you look at a sunset or you observe the stars or you look at the mountains or you catch a fish even, you're not to look at it and just go, oh, this is good. You're to look at it and say, this is good because he made it. That we're actually supposed to experience his goodness, his, create, his character, who he is through what he's made for us. That is that his goodness, his enormity, his beauty, his complexity, that all of those things that we find in the world, that they'd all point back to him. It was very good because now there was someone to see it and someone to be drawn to him through it. And so this morning, we're going to take that next step. We're going to consider the creation of man in Genesis chapter 2. And as we start in, I want to take us back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And remind you that Moses used a summary statement before he walked you through it. Because when you come to Genesis 2, and if you've ever wondered about the relationship between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, I would just quickly point out to you that historical Orthodox Christianity has always seen chapter 2 not as contradictory to chapter 1, but as complementary. That is to say that what you find in chapter 2 is the fleshing out of the summary that you find in Genesis 127. That's just a real quick Passover of a lot of theology. That is to say, when you read in Genesis 127, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. If you want to know how that happens, he explains it in Genesis chapter 2. So let's go there. Genesis 2 verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God had made the earth and the heavens. There are two things I want us to take note of in verse 4. The first one is the word generations. Now at first read it may not stand out to you. But if you read this book over and over and over that word does begin to stick out. Because if you read generations and if you've got a different version ahead of you it might say account. The word here in Hebrew is tolada. And what this word does in the book of Genesis is it starts to outline sections. There are 11 distinct sections in the book where Moses, as the writer, is going to tell you something about the generations, and he's going to tell you something about, in most cases, it's going to be a character. Here he happens to use the earth, and he's going to tell you basically what happens through that. What's the story behind all this? So that when you see this in Genesis 2, he's beginning to tell you the earth and the heavens have been created. So this is what happens. He's going to use it 
to introduce a new section, to, and basically that's man. The second thing we need to pick up on in Genesis 2, if you're reading well, is that you need to note that the name of God has changed. Because no longer do you see Elohim, God, the all-powerful, sovereign God, who can do anything, who speaks everything into creation with his words. In chapter 2, it changes, and you'll see it even in English. It now says, the Lord God. And what you see is a Jehovah Elohim, which translates to the proper name of God, which is to say that God begins to get personal. It's no longer God just identifying himself as the all-powerful, majestic God who creates everything. He now starts to identify himself as the covenant-keeping God of Israel that we'll see as we walk through the Bible. He begins to make himself known, and what that forecasts for us is that this all-powerful God who speaks everything into creation, who has all the power in all of the universe, also is uniquely personal and wants to have a relationship. And you see that in his covenant-keeping nature. He reaches out to man and creates covenants with us. We'll see that even in this text this morning. So let's jump back into verse 5. Moses putting the creation of man in context. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And Moses puts it together for us, and he, he's locating for us the creation of man just prior to Genesis 1.26, but it also forecasts for us the necessity of man for creation to complete it, right? There was no man to work the ground. Creation wasn't yet complete. So he creates man, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And you start to see it unfold, that the almighty God, the all-powerful one, becomes personal, and he picks up with his hand, it's an not a literal hand, it's an anthropomorphism. I can't remember what that word is. But he picks up dust and begins to form it. The word here for formed is actually an artist's term. You find it used most specifically through the book of Psalms. It's this idea of molding and shaping something with great purpose and with great clay. And what you find is that the Lord God picked up the dust as if it were clay and he shaped it and he breathed into it. He gave it the nefesh. He gave it the breath of life. <sighs> and man was created. But God wasn't finished. See, this is what begins to set man distinct upon everything else. Because the animals, he just spoke into existence. But man, he forms. Man, he breathes into. And he's not done yet. Because in Genesis 2, what you're trying to see in the midst of this is this almighty God who is also personal, that's what this text is conveying to us, has a special love for man. And you start to see that unroll in verse 8. And the Lord God planted 
a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. For he had created the entire universe, had created a planet, had created landforms, and in the middle of the land of everything he made, he decides to make a very specific, a very special place to place man in. A place that's designed for him specifically to enjoy, and he places him there. Look at how it's described, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree... Now listen to this, that is pleasant to the sight. It's pleasing to your eyes. It's beautiful and good for food. He cared that you would like it, right? It wasn't just like he was cranking out Brussels sprout trees. He's thinking of pears and peaches and apples and oranges, and he wants you to delight in what he's making, Trees that are pleasing to look at. Things that are good to taste. And what we need to start taking in is that God has a special love for man. He wants us to enjoy his creation. He wants us to delight in his creation. And just like I said when we started off this message, the end of it is not that we would look at creation and worship it. Man, this apple is so good, oh great apple. But that we would see God through the apple. We would see God through everything he'd made. That our worship of him would be the end. It'd be the highest thing, not the creation. Again, that's the, that's the sin in Romans 1, that we would worship the creation rather than the creator. He created everything that we would enjoy it. The rest of verse 9. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The first of them is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. Where there is gold and the gold is of the land that is good and the bedellium and the onyx stones are there. We don't know anything about the river Pushan. It's not known in the modern era. Verse 13. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. You read into it, you would find that there are many people who believe the Gihon is now, was the river Nile before the flood. But to the most part, it too is an unknown river. Verse 14. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Both of these actually you'd find in modern Iraq now. Uh, Both of them still exist. But what we find in this description, if you pay attention to the details, as this garden, this Eden, was colossal. It was enormous. In fact, it is far more like a botanic garden stretching for miles upon miles upon miles than it would be a little garden in your backyard. For if you'll look back at verse 8, you would see that Eden needed directions. Moses noted that garden was in the east side of Eden. Now you've got to get pretty big to start giving directions. You've got to get pretty large to start dividing things into quarter, and it takes some space to do that. But what all takes even more space is when you've got a river that divides into four rivers. 
And what Moses is setting you up to see and appreciate is that this all-powerful, sovereign Elohim is also a good and loving Jehovah who loves us with such an abundance that he created an enormous thing for us to enjoy. And I'm not even talking about the whole earth. Friends, get this, your mind around this idea. Most of us will never step on all seven continents. There's whole parts of this creation we'll never see. That's not even pointing out what we keep finding in the ocean and what we keep finding in space. God created this garden, this enormous expanse for Adam and Eve to enjoy. He created abundantly. And he created abundantly with an eye to give man pleasure. To give man enjoyment. He wanted you to delight in his creation. And ultimately, he wanted you to delight in him because of his creation. What you start to see is God building a relationship with man. Just like a, a, a boy would bring a girl a flower or bring her chocolates or bring things, you start to see God wooing man. I love you. I love you. I want to give you good things. I want you to see that true delight is found in me. I want you to see that happiness, the joy, that all this will be found in me. God starts to build a relationship with man by placing him in the garden. And watch this. And then he gives him purpose. Verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now if we're not careful, we don't like that sentence. Because if we're not careful, what we just saw was God gave Adam a job. And we don't like jobs. We don't like work. And what we miss is that God created the garden, put Adam in the garden. By the way, Adam is the Hebrew word that we get man from. It's his name. God puts Adam in the garden to cultivate it, to keep it, to work. And we tend to miss out on this. We tend to think that work, is, work comes after the fall, that it's an effect of sin. Rather than seeing work as it is, that we were given work from the beginning, moments after our creation, that actually was our divine purpose, you want to see full redemption? Here it is. Chapter 1, the command was given to man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the second part, subdue it and have dominion over it. These words evoke work. So what we find is that we were created to enjoy his creation. And that part of our enjoyment was of his creation was cultivating his creation, working in it. And our work in his creation was supposed to evoke worship out of us. That if we use the gifts he's given us with the things he's put before us, and we go, man, God, you're so amazing. You're so great. That I delight not only in what you've made, but that you've let me do this. I get to participate. I get to work. And we see that work was created to be a means of enjoying him. And enjoying his creation. It's the earliest form 
of worship we see in the text. And the only way that Adam could truly worship would be if he could worship freely. And so God gives Adam a choice. He gives him freedom. And he does so by giving Adam a boundary. Consider verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, obviously, we're going to revisit this text more next week when we walk into Genesis 3. But the first thing I really need you to consider, the first thing I really need you to lean into, and the first thing I really need to expand your mind to see is that you may eat of every tree in the garden. That there was first given to Adam every opportunity to live in the abundance of what God had made for him. There was incredible, enormous freedom in the obedience he was offered. There was enormous freedom. Consider all of the peaches, consider all the cherries, consider all the oranges, all the mangoes. You've never eaten a mulberry, you're missing out. There was huge freedom here in obedience. And yet, even in the broadness of permission, there was also a narrow restriction. And how quickly do we jump to the rule, right? That's the point our heart jumps to immediately, like, wait, what? I can't eat that? That's what I want to do. You want to see it? You want me to prove it to you? For the rest of this message, do not think of pink elephants. Here's the thing. You've already got one in your head. And every time I make another illustration, you're going to think of a pink elephant. Why? Because we're all sinners. The moment you put a restriction before you, you go, I want it. That's exactly what I wanted to do. You ever walk through a store and there's a sign that says, do not cross this line? You're like, yep, here I am. You see a sign that says, do not open this door. And you're like, what's behind there? I, I deserve to look in there. It's our human nature. We immediately jump to the rule we can't break. Rather than enjoying the abundant provisions of everything there is for us to enjoy. There was a huge garden full of trees, unfathomable trees. We can't even get our mind around. These are perfect creations of God. The fall hasn't even existed yet. And there's trees and trees and trees and trees full of fruit. There was huge freedom. And he could eat from any of them except for one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only tree he needed to avoid, if he was a smart man, he builds a tent and moves about 30 miles east. But he doesn't. And there's a consequence. If you eat of it, you shall die. And again, we'll pick that up next week. And so what we find, if we're paying attention to the text, is that the Lord God creates Adam, gives him a purpose, gives him a boundaries, and now gives him a partner. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he should call them. 
and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. What you find in the text is that God desired Adam to see that every animal had a pair, that they were completed. I read a children's Bible a while back that described a scene this way. Mr. and Mrs. Bear, Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, Mr. and Mrs. Labradoodle, if you'll give it to me. And what we find is it would be clear to Adam at the end of naming the animals is that he was missing his complement. And that none of these things would ever fill that role for him. And so when you get to verse 21, so because he'd walked through all these other animals, because he'd seen that they all had a pair. So the Lord God caused caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now I want us to consider this again. He makes creation good. He creates man good. Man being alone, not good. That's the first time you see that kind of an explanation in the text. God creates man's good thing, creates the creation. It's a good thing. This guy being alone, not a good thing. We were created to be in community. There's something about that that we absolutely cannot miss. For it was not enough for Adam to walk alone with God in the garden. He needed something, and that something was a woman. Now hear me out on this. She was not given to complete him. She was not given to serve him. She was given to help him. Unless you wonder what help looks like, I'll give it to you this way. This term, helper, is used by Jesus to describe the relationship that the Holy Spirit would have with believers. You want to understand the Holy Spirit's role in your life? And women, don't overplay this. I don't think anyone thinks the Holy Spirit is subordinate to you, do you? No, the Holy Spirit exists to help you along in what God has given you to do. The woman was given to man to help him complete what the task, the commands that God had given him. He can't fill the earth by himself. He can't cultivate the earth by himself. So God has put him, given him a partner that they could walk together. Verse 23, the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Listen, this text is absolutely pregnant with theological issues. We could preach an entire series on the Imago Dei that we are made in the image of God. We could preach an entire series on gender issues. Male and female, he created them. We could preach a whole series on the creation of marriage. You see that in this text. She shows up as a woman, and by verse 24, she's a wife. God created and initiated marriage. 
Those are all huge issues, and if you want to dig in more, in 2015, we preached a series called Design and Deception. You can find those podcasts online. They all lean into that. But all of those issues are not the heart of this text. They're huge, they're important, but they're not the heart of this text. In Genesis 2, God is showing the creation of Man, that he's revealing to us that this all-powerful, sovereign God also was personal. That he wanted to have a relationship with man, so he creates the world in such a way that we would enjoy it, that we would delight in it. In such a way that we would know and understand that we're being pursued. So when you look at the stars, when you see a sun dog, when you build an incredible snowman, because we got a ton of snow, to recognize that God loves you, that he created us for that purpose, that we, he set us in the garden so that we would know we were loved. And what I want you to see in that is that Adam and Eve were placed In the perfect environment, and I mean that quite literally, it was an enormous garden for their enjoyment. This was God's desire. This was his purpose. And remember, none of this catches them off guard, right? But they're in a perfect place. There's no fear. There's no shame. There's no competition. Consider verse 25. They're both naked and not ashamed. And that's not a sexual picture. That's a picture of complete innocence. It's a picture of complete fulfilledness. They're in the perfect environment without sin and they lack nothing. So how will they fare? You know, we tend to operate as if, if I only had this, I'd be fine. If I only had this, I'd be okay. If I only, I wouldn't sin anymore. If I only, I wouldn't make this mistake anymore. If I only... And we're to be called back into this part of Genesis 2 before we walk into Genesis 3 to see Adam and Eve and go, man, they had it all. I don't care what your if-onlys are. They had all of it. And how will they do? What decision will they make? Will they live out in the fullness of the obedience that they've got? and the freedom of all God has created for them, or will they pick the only thing in all of creation they can't do? Well, you have to wait till next week to find out. In the meantime, friends, what I want you to walk away with is a knowledge that you were created to enjoy him that you were created to enjoy his creation, every single part of it, and to worship him through it. That if you see snow outside and you struggle with it, can I just call you into Isaiah 1 to be reminded, though your sin may be like scarlet, I will make it white as snow. You want to know what God thinks of your sin? He put four feet of snow in your front yard to tell you about it. You want to know what lavished grace looks like? He's illustrated that for you. An inch would work, right? We'd get the illustration. Thanks, God. No, he gives us like four feet, and we got like another foot coming if you pay attention to the weather. God loves 
us and wants to pursue a relationship with us and he wants to enjoy this beautiful creation that he made and he wants the creation to point to him and he wants it to point to this great enormous love he has for us full stop that's genesis 2 let's see what man does with it in genesis 3 Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you love us. Thank you that you love us with an enormous love that we'll never know the end, the breadth, the depth, or the height of. Thank you that your love for us is more beautiful than the Grand Canyon or the Milky Way. Father, thank you that your love for us is bigger than the universe. Thank you that your love for us is deeper than the deepest part of the oceans that we haven't even been able to explore yet because we don't have the technology to get there. Father, may we see in this text that you created us to enjoy you and to be wooed to you by your creation. And Father, would you keep us far, far, far away from the sin of Romans 1 that always calls us to worship the creation rather than the creator. To worship stuff rather than you. And Father, as we walk along in Genesis, may we be reminded that you were sovereign over all of it, that the sin of Adam did not surprise you, Neither does our sin surprise you. But in your perfect providence, from the beginning of time, you had a plan to send your son Jesus to die on the cross for us, to take our place, to justify us completely, that all of our sins could and would be forgiven in his name. We thank you for the salvation to be found only in the name of Christ. It's in his beautiful, precious, and majestic name we pray. Amen. this time we'd like to invite the ushers forward and the worship team as we continue in worship having learned more a little bit about God's greatness. I pray that would be impressed upon us that his creation isn't just something to be seen um, but it is something to be enjoyed that we might give God greater glory um, and not just creation but beyond that in his son Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for us. Um, So as we worship through giving, I pray that our hearts would overflow um, both in what we give to the Lord and in our praise for him now and how we live for him this week. So we'll pass the plate um, and continue singing.